0: You are listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church in Louise, Texas. Thank you for listening. Amen. Let our heart be ever yours, Father. Help us to trust you more and more every single day as we grow in relationship with you, as we chase after you. Lord, help our relationship with you to grow. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alrighty, if you have your Bibles or your little scripture notebooks, we're going to start off this morning in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. See, I've never heard a sermon series on Ecclesiastes. I've, I actually, I was trying to recall, I don't know if I've ever heard a sermon on Ecclesiastes at all. I've never done a, a real deep dive into the book. I've read it a couple times, I've studied it, and it but it always seemed kind of gloomy and dreary. Um... It's not like other books of the Bible. It's difficult. In fact, if you ask people, especially scholars, and even Jewish scholars, they they question why did God include this book in the Bible, because it's not like any other book of the Bible. It's a difficult book to deal with. Um, Some believe that it was put there in error, and it's an error to include it as part of Scripture, that it doesn't belong with the rest of what God is conveying through His Word. But as I studied it, and as I studied it, and as I read it, and as I read it, and as I studied it some more over the last few months, I have come to the conclusion that Ecclesiastes is a beautiful, magnificent piece of art. It's, it's a beautiful book of Scripture with the goal of driving us towards finding meaning in life. And that's why I titled the ser- the sermon series Ecclesiastes, The Search for Meaning. Why is it so difficult to, to deal with? Well, because it doesn't steer away from the difficulties in life. He's not, the author of Ecclesiastes isn't trying to hide behind platitudes. He's not trying to hide behind these Christian sayings or these, these biblical sayings that we all hear. He's driving at the reality of the world that we live in, that is broken. In fact, Herman Melville, if you don't know who he is, he's the author of the book Moby Dick. He called Ecclesiastes the truest of all books. He called it the truest of all books, and why? Because it doesn't hide the reality of sorrow and pain of living in a fallen world. It doesn't hide the fact that there is a longing placed within us. In fact, the book can be somewhat refreshing. Ecclesiastes can be refreshing because the author doesn't sugarcoat the realities of the world that we live in. He doesn't gloss over the emptiness that life feels like at times. He doesn't put a veneer on and try to help us see. He doesn't put a veneer on and try to keep us away from seeing that things are broken. The author acknowledges that life is hard, but he also acknowledges that God is good. You see, the author of Ecclesiastes grew up hearing the platitudes of religion. He grew up getting the same pat answers to the problems of the world, but he wasn't satisfied with the answers that he received. He was looking for something deeper something more meaningful. And I'm going to be honest with you this morning that some of you are going to struggle as we read through and dive through this book. It is going to seem to clash with what you've heard about and learned in Sunday school, what you've been taught your whole life. But God has included it in his scripture for his own purposes. In his own purposes and for his own glory. And we can learn a lot from Ecclesiastes. We can learn how to be honest about the problems, to be honest about our struggles. We can learn how to pray well, how to lament, how to cry out to God when trouble strikes. Never cursing God in our circumstances, but crying out to Him because there has to be meaning to all of this. The book of Ecclesiastes, here's how I want us to look at for it. Look at it. It is a book that is longing for something better. It's longing for something greater. He's searching for meaning in the mundane. He's searching for meaning in what can seem to be meaningless. Ecclesiastes looks at the brokenness all around us, and what does he long for? What does the author long for? He longs for restoration. He longs for a rediscovery of the Garden of Eden, a restoration of life, of creation, and of meaning. And before we get into the text this morning, I want to lay kind of the groundwork for what we're going to read and study over the next 12 or so weeks. Ecclesiastes is a book for all generations. See, at the time that of this writing, the author is reflecting on King Solomon's life. All that King Solomon had gained, all that he had missed, all it's almost like he's he's letting us look into a cautionary tale for the readers. For the young people, it points to the reality that there is more to life than money, pleasure, and knowledge. For young adults, it's it points to the meaning outside of oneself that there will never be true fulfillment in your job, in your income, or in your relationships. For the middle age, it points to finding joy not in your activities, not in busyness, but seeking joy and enjoying Jesus. For the more seasoned among us, it helps to point to the reality that faithfulness is the key to ending well. This book is a book for everyone, from the babe, from the cradle to the grave, if you will. But that doesn't make it any less confusing. In fact, back in August when we were first gathering back together with the youth, uh, one of the youth asked me about Ecclesiastes. She had just read it, and she was really put off by it. She was confused by it. She's like, why is this here? And I was like, that's a good question. Why did God give this to us? If we read it just at a surface level, it can be very confusing. It can be overwhelmingly confusing. And one of the reasons that it's that way is that the author gives us a whole list and host of problems and issues. He points out the worst of what's going wrong in the world. And we don't get any solution or purpose until the very end of the book. And many of us don't even read a book to the end of it. We get into it, we start looking at it, and we don't ever get to the end. And if you don't get to the end of Ecclesiastes, you will not understand the meaning of Ecclesiastes. So as we begin the series, I want to do what I do when I'm reading a book sometimes, and I want to peek back at the end of Ecclesiastes. Levi's taking this habit over from me too, and he, he looks at the ending of the book as he's reading the book. But this will really help us to open our eyes and to understand what the author in Ecclesiastes is trying to say. So in chapter 12, the last chapter of Ecclesiastes, in verse 13, he gives us the reason why he has written this. And this is what he says. When all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commands because this is for all humanity. All of the brokenness and all the problems that we see in Ecclesiastes is coming to, this, is coming to head right here. What is all the matter? What is the meaning of life? The meaning of life is to fear God and to keep his commands. When all has been heard. The conclusion of the matter is this, fear God and keep his commands, because this is for all humanity. So as we venture into the deep waters of this book, I want, to keep the, I want you to keep this verse in the back of your mind, highlight it, underline it, just sear it into your brain. I want you to know that this is where we are going, that the goal of all life is to fear God and to obey his commandments. Now, one thing to note about Ecclesiastes, that as we look at the book, there are mentions of God in the book, but they are very few and far between. Instead, this book is not a book about what God has done in history. It is looking at our shared humanity instead of God's movement in history. And what I mean is this, is that the author doesn't talk about Exodus. He doesn't mention the patriarchs. He doesn't mention any of the history of Israel. Rather, his primary concern is the reality of the world around us which is why it seems that it can be very dark and gloomy. For the author of Ecclesiastes, God is real, but so is the brokenness and so is the suffering in the world. Ecclesiastes belongs to this this segment of Scripture, this, this part of Scripture called the wisdom literature. Wisdom literature includes books of the Bible, such as Proverbs, the Song of Solomon, or even the book of Job. And each of the wisdom books deals with something just slightly different, Proverbs focuses primarily on ethics, how to live a life that honors God and honors people. Song of Solomon, or Songs of Songs, is a love letter. It's also part of the wisdom tradition, and it focuses on the love between a man and his wife and the joy found in that relationship. Job is primarily about the reality of suffering in life and how even in suffering, God is in control. Ecclesiastes is about the pursuit of meaning, and how true meaning cannot be found on this earthly plane. That there is nothing that is created that can give us meaning. So why would we choose to go through the book of Ecclesiastes? Why would we want to spend time, why would I want to spend time in the book that seems to have less of a focus on God and more of a focus on us? Because ultimately it is about God. But firstly, the book is honest about life's troubles and difficulties. And if we're honest with ourselves... We often aren't honest with ourselves. As followers of Jesus, we tend to come to church and we put on a face. We wear a mask and act as if everything is okay all of the time. We don't want to reveal our hurts or our hang-ups. It's easier to pretend that everything is fine when everything is in fact not fine. Because we don't want to broach those issues. And we can take pointers from Ecclesiastes and admit that nothing is as it should be. Nothing is as it should be. There is brokenness. There is problems. We have issues. We're not perfect. Secondly, Ecclesiastes helps us to ask and answer the big questions of life, like where do we find meaning? Is there a point to all of life? What is my purpose? These are all questions that everyone asks, and Ecclesiastes will help us to answer the questions. And thirdly, Ecclesiastes will help us to worship God better. What we will see is where God really does fill in the gaps and the emptiness in our hearts and in our souls. Ecclesiastes will help us to be grateful for the gifts that we have. We will learn to be content. And in being content, we will learn joy. We will find joy. We will discover that the secret of life is not more things, but more Jesus. We will see that even through though we live in chaos, God is in control. And finally, it will teach us how to live for God and not just ourselves. It will point us to a God-centered worldview rather than a self-centered one. It will demonstrate creation's need for its creator. It, it will demonstrate our dependence on God to make meaning out of the brokenness. So we talked about why we are going to study Ecclesiastes, but how are we going to do it? We're going to lead with what I talked about a little bit earlier, knowing that the answer to all the questions in Ecclesiastes is to fear God and to obey his commands. The reality is, is we're not going to have a lot of the answers to the questions that we want in life. We aren't going to be able to get clear-cut answers to why all the suffering in the world exists, why the brokenness in the world isn't completely fixed, why we aren't in control of the circumstances that surround life, but we are in control of the reaction that we have towards them. So if we want to live a life consistent with how God intended, then we need to fear Him and obey His commands. A meaningful and fulfilling life is built on living in light of God's revealed Word. And building a life living in light of God's revealed Word is the beginning of restoring and recovering Eden. Ecclesiastes is pointing us at what is real so that we will have a longing for what ought to be. We long and we groan with creation for the ultimate restoration and recovery of what has been lost. Now that I've set the stage for our study that's the introduction, 14 minutes long, let's get into what God actually says through the author in Ecclesiastes. But before we do that, let's pray and ask God to illuminate his scriptures this morning. Father God, I pray that this morning as we read your word, that you would illuminate the scriptures, that you would open our hearts and our minds to see who you are and what you have done. Lord, that there is meaning in life, that meaning is found in Loving you and chasing after you. That even though sometimes we feel like it is meaningless, Lord, if we belong to you, there is meaning. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1. This is what it says, the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, one of the big questions of Ecclesiastes is, who is the author of Ecclesiastes? See, traditionally, the author has been seen as Solomon. However, recently, uh, there has been some pushback to this traditional view. Solomon never states that he is the one who writes the book. Rather, we get this introduction, the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. There are other things later in the book that cause people to doubt that Solomon is the author as well. Now, whether Solomon is actually the author or not, most scholars would agree that this is at least a retelling of parts of Solomon's life that the author is recounting Solomon's life um, in in detail from the pursuit of his wisdom to, to the pursuit of women and wealth. Think of Ecclesiastes as sort of a memoir of Solomon. But why does the author call the speaker the teacher? Or in some of your translations, it might be preacher. Well, this word is difficult to translate from Hebrew to English. If you're looking at a different translation, it probably says teacher or preacher, Uh, But the word in Hebrew is this word, kohelet. It means one who gathers, one who leads an assembly. And regardless of what we call him, we need to know that he is a man who has gathered people to listen to what he is saying. He isn't speaking or writing in a bubble. Rather, it's almost as if he's preaching to a congregation about finding the meaning in life. We can think of Ecclesiastes as a memoir sermon, a testimony, if you will, for those who have gathered to worship God. And as we listen to a sermon on the direction of life, it it should push us towards examining our own life, what we are chasing after, where are we going to find meaning. What the content of the sermon that Kohelet is teaching, we find in the first or the second 10 verses um, of Ecclesiastes. These themes in the first verses are how life should be viewed if there is no belief in God. So if there's no belief in God, how, are we to, how, how is life viewed? And he answers this question in, in verse 2, and he says this, absolute futility, says the teacher, absolute futility, everything is futile. What a way to start a sermon. What a way. Or if you're reading in the, uh, in the New International Version, it says this, meaningless, absolute meaningless, everything is meaningless. Could you imagine if I started up, I got up here and I started a sermon that way? How would you feel about that? I'd feel pretty, it'd be pretty heavy, right? Now, we do need to take a moment to talk about this word futility or meaningless or vanity or whatever the translation you're looking at. Um, I was speaking with a friend a couple weeks ago and we were talking about this passage because I was bouncing it off of him and I was lamenting on the limitations of translations. Translations are really good. They're helpful helpful. Because I'm going to presume that none of us in here speak ancient Hebrew or speak ancient Greek, right? So we need translations to better understand what God has revealed to us in His Word. But often when there are translations, there may be a word that is difficult to convey. The translator is wanting to get us the sense of the word. But there is something often lost in translation. Now, understanding this word... Futility or meaningless or vanity, depending on what your translation says, is extremely important for understanding Ecclesiastes. And here's why. This word is used 40 times, almost 40 times, in all of the book. So it's a big deal to the author. Now, this word, futile, vain, meaningless, is actually the Hebrew word havel. You'll see it on the screen, H E V E L. That's the transliteration of it. That's how we would say it in English, havel. In the the original language, it means something closer to breath or vapor or a puff of smoke. Think about going outside on a nice cold morning and letting out a deep breath. (sighs) That breath that you are seeing rising from your mouth is the image portrayed in this word, Havel. So Kohelet, or the teacher, is wanting us to see that life is like that. It is simply a breath, a vapor. It's here one minute, and it's gone the next. We also see this in the New Testament, in James chapter 4, verse 14, when he says, Yet you, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What will your life be? For you are like a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Or in Psalm chapter 144, verse 4, A human is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Our life is marked by this word, havel. There is not one aspect of life that isn't affected by the reality of havel. And death is the ultimate havel. When we die, we experience what it means to be just a vapor. The way that the teacher or the preacher uses this phrase is also interesting. He says this, hevel hevelim, or hevel of hevels. When the author of the Bible uses this phrase two two times back to back, it would add weight to the phrase. It would mean the most or best of whatever he is talking about. So like song of songs would be the very best song, or king of kings would be the very best and greatest king, or holy of holies is the holiest place on all the earth. Therefore, hevel hevelim or hevel of hevels would mean this, as meaningless as possible. As futile as possible, as vain as possible, this is what it is. So when the author of Ecclesiastes is talking about this hevel or this futility, he's looking at it and saying, this is as meaningless as it gets. Now this word hevel is often used when it comes to idols in the Old Testament. Why? Because idols are meaningless. They can't do anything. They have no power. They are created by people to try to provide satisfaction, but they are empty. Now I remember when I was in Bible college, I had one assignment in uh, uh, my world religions class. And it was that we would go and we would visit different places of worship. And one of the places that the, guy, the professor told us to go visit was, uh, or that we could go visit was a Hindu temple. So me and my buddy got in a car and we drove to a Hindu ke- temple. And looking back, Hevel is what I saw. You see, in the Hindu temple, they were, there were several statues lying in the wall. And those statues each represented a different god that they worshipped. And in each of these statues, there were burning incense next to them. And that smoke from the incense is what people were really chasing after. They had put their hope in this idols. They, they had offered food or money or other goods to the idols, those gods, that they, and they would pray that they would hear them. But it was all chasing after this vapor the smoke that was disappearing it was meaningless and sometimes this is what happens to us let's not disparage these hindu people and their belief they aren't so different from you or i we place our hope we place our faith we place our trust in things that are never going to satisfy that are just like that vapor whether it be sex money relationships spouses kids or the rest these things will never satisfy. Why? Because they are a vapor. They are a mirage. They are heaven. They may bring us temporary happiness, but they will never satisfy us. Nothing will ever satisfy you except for Jesus. See, Jesus takes what is meaningless and he gives it meaning. Whatever you're trying to build your life on other than Jesus is ultimately going to be meaningless. Now, here's the lie that we're told that these good things that God has given us are the best things. But these good things will never be the best things because why? They are simply creations. If we want the best thing, we need to look past the creation and look to the creator. Now here's where I want to provide some balance. He's not saying that there is nothing good for us under the sun. He is not saying that we should sit on our hands and just wait to die. He's not leading us into a state of gloom and depression. He wants us to realize the reality of what we can be chasing after. The author even states that there are good things in life. If you flip over to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 24, he says this, There is nothing better for a person than to eat, drink, and enjoy his work. I have seen even this from God's hand. There is good in the world. The problem is, is when we try to take that good and we substitute it for God. When the good things become the God things, that's when we miss the mark. And in that, we will never find meaning. So when the preacher looks out at the created world, what does he see? He sees futility, vanity, meaninglessness. But I do want you to notice something that he's doing here, that he's limiting the meaninglessness. If you look down at verse 3, and we'll go into it a little more depth in just a second, there's another key phrase that shows up often in Ecclesiastes, and it's this phrase, under the sun. You see, the futility of life, the vanity of life, the meaninglessness of life is limited to the natural realm. Again, he is pointing to the reality that there must be something more to life because everything in this life seems to be coming up empty. So let's read through verse 3. It says this, What does a person gain for all of his efforts that he labors at under the sun? So he's looking at this under the sun, but he's also talking about this gain. What do we gain From all the effort that we put in. This idea of gaining or a profit has the idea of dividends, right? That life is going to show up, and it shows up almost a dozen times in Ecclesiastes. Gain does. Gain carries with it the idea that there will be something left over, that there will be a surplus. With all the effort that you put into life, all the toil, all the labor, all the time, all the energy, what do you get out of it? What is your profit? Because the reality of the matter is, no matter how much you work, how much you gain, how much effort you exert, you are going to die, and you can't take any of that that you have gained with you. What does it profit to work all this hard under the sun? What are we going to get from it? If you are chasing after all these things in the world, if you are seeking to profit from this earth, you are chasing the wind. That's another phrase that's going to show up later. You are seeking a mirage. Ultimately, it will profit you nothing. If there is no meaning, then there can never be a prophet. You're like a jo- dog chasing his tail. The one who chases after meaning in their toil, meaning in their work, meaning in their relationships. If all there is to life is what is under the sun, then there will never be meaning and gain. And Jesus says something akin to this in Mark chapter 8, verse 36. He says, what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world yet lose his life. Too often we chase after things that will never profit us, while we're not chasing after the one, Jesus, who will. How can this teacher, how can this preacher come to this conclusion? Well, the reality is he's very observant. We're going to look at what he has to say in the next few verses. We're going to hear him say, nothing changes, nothing is new, and nothing is remembered. A very hopeful message, isn't it? First, nothing changes. Verses 4 through 7. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets, panting. It hurries back to the place where it rises, gusting to the south, turning to the north. Turning, turning, goes the wind, and the wind returns in its cycles. All the streams flow to the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. The first thing that the author of Ecclesiastes wants to see of this futility of life is that nothing changes. We're going to see that a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Think about that for just a second. One of the interesting things he says is that a generation goes and a generation comes, not comes and goes. Usually that's the phrase we use, is comes and goes, right? Why did he put it like that? Because there's never any progress. Generations are progressive. They aren't progressive. They're just replacements. One generation just simply replaces the next. The only constant is that the earth remains forever. Generation after generation, the new generation just replaces the old. This is the circle of life. The same old, same old. The same monotony. Like we're stuck in some kind of generational groundhog's day. The mindsets are always the same when it comes to generations. The younger generation thinks the older generation is stuffy and old-fashioned, and the older generation thinks the younger generation is lazy, selfish, and disrespectful. It never changes. It's a circle of life, as we learned from the Lion King. People come and people go, but the earth remains. Jerome, one of the early church fathers, said it this way, What is more vain than this vanity, that the earth, which was made for humans, stays, but the humans themselves, the lords of the earth, suddenly dissolve into dust? What is more vain than that? That we, this earth was created for us, and yet we don't ever get to stay here. Not only is this true for humans, but it's true for the sun and the wind and the, the sea as well, this, this monotony of life. He likens the son to running on a treadmill, chasing his own tail, always disappearing and reappearing. For all its effort, for all its energy that it spends, it never makes any progress. It's just down one day and up the next. Not only that, but not only the sun, but the wind. It's constantly moving, blowing wherever it will blow, turning and turning, but never going anywhere. The cycle continues, but there's no progress, never reaching its destination. The sea and the rivers are the same. Streams flow into the sea, and the sea never gets any deeper. It never fills up. The river never runs dry. It's no doubt that the teacher here is thinking about specifically the Dead Sea in Israel. You see, the Dead Sea is a landlocked sea. It has nowhere to go, and yet for centuries, the water has flowed into it, and it still has never overflowed. Obviously, we know about the, the cycle of, of water, right? That's what Declan was telling me about the other day. But the reality is, is no matter how much things happen, nothing changes All of this work, all of this toil of nature is exhausting to think about, yet it profits nothing. As much movement and energy that is expanded, nothing changes. Where is the profit? What is the goal? Where is the progress? If we want to make this a more modern example, think about it this way. You finish laundry today. There's going to be more laundry tomorrow. You wash the dishes today. You're going to have to eat again, and that means you're going to have to wash the dishes again. Any progress that you made with the choice that you have done will never be done. You're running on this treadmill to try to keep up. One commentator said it this way, The natural cycle demonstrates that all our activity is pointless because nothing changes despite a whole lot of activity. The poem paints a picture that we are trapped in a monotonous prison day after day, not so much unlike Bill Murray in Groundhog Day. The monotonous prison is exhausting. And the teacher, preacher, knows as much. In verse 8, he says this, All things are wearisome. More than anyone can say. The eye is not satisfied by seeing or the ear by or ear filled with hearing. All things are wearisome. No matter how much we try, no matter how much we toil, no matter how much energy that we exert, we will never be satisfied. Why? Because things will never change. Our own personal experiences tells us this. We get worn out chasing the same old thing, especially when we believe that there isn't anything more to life. So if we got money and we want money and we're chasing after money, guess what? That money's never going to satisfy. We're going to need more money. Not only that, but we use the senses God has given us to find satisfaction. We use our eyes to look and seek new things. I don't know how many of you have noticed or not, but it doesn't matter how much media you consume, whether on TV or books, you're never satisfied. There's always another book to read. There's always another show to watch, another social media platform to explore. And if we actually took a moment and, and instead of being distracted and we saw these things for what they really are, we would know that we would never be satisfied. I know it's hard to believe, but you could live without Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat or TikTok or even cable or Netflix or Hulu or professional sports, and even you could survive without internet or Wi-Fi. You could. But too often we want to chase after those things. I hear Levi in the back saying, I could never. But you could. Those things didn't always exist. We're seeking to satisfy our senses. If we're seeking to satisfy our senses, we will never truly be satisfied. It may feel good in a moment, it may cause a brief distraction, but it won't bring fulfillment. Now, most of you have heard the phrase, and even probably said the phrase, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Well, this idea comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 9. He says this, what has been will always be, and what has been done will always be done. There is nothing new under the sun. There is nothing new There truly is nothing new under the sun. Now, when people hear this, especially those who like to argue, they would say, sure there has. Televisions are relatively new. Smartphones are relatively new. Social media is new. Rocket ships are new. But the argument misses the mark on what the teacher is is trying to say. Surely, there are innovations in life. But the reality is there is nothing new that fundamentally changes the world. Television is just simply a different form of entertainment. Smartphones are a different tool to communicate. Social media is just a different way to communicate, be entertained, and get very angry at times. Rocket shifts are a new form of transportation, as are cars. New innovations still fall in the same categories of the human experience. You see, the fundamental events in life remain the same. Birth, marriage, family, work, taxes, and death. Nothing changes the fundamentals of humanity. Not only this, but these new innovations are still created by the same fallen people who created the first generation of those. They could be used for good or bad. You see, the tools may change, but their uses remain the same. And the most fundamental thing hasn't changed. We are still sinners in need of a savior. We are still broken and we're seeking restoration. Now to end on a high note, here in the opening of ecclesiastes we're going to read that nothing is remembered. Nothing remembered, Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 10. Can one say about anything, look, this is new, it has already existed in the ages before us. Verse 11. There is no remembrance of those who came before, and to those who will come after there will be no remembrance by those who follow them. Nothing remembered. We tend to have, as one uh, commentator called, historical amnesia. Each generation tends to be- live with blinders on. We tend to forget or negate the past as not important to our, as our present. But the reality is, is that the things happening ha- now have happened before. But we tend to live in the present age and we forget about the past. One guy said this, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. My question to you is, like, how many of you can remember your great-grandparents? How many of you can remember, maybe you can remember your great-grandparents. What about your great-great-grandparents? Or your great-great-great-grandparents? How far do you go back before you just forget that those people even existed? That those people lived through some of the roughest times, through World War I, World War II, through the Civil War, right? Some of them didn't even make it to America. And we don't know these people. We may know people two generations behind or above us. And we may know a couple generations ahead of us. But soon, we'll forget. And not only will we forget, we'll be forgotten. We tend to think that we live in a special slice of history. But what we can know from Scripture is that things are usually the same. There is nothing new. And here's the hardest pill to swallow. One day, your name will most likely be forgotten. For all your toil... For all your work, for all the energy that you exerted, you will be forgotten. Thinking this can lead us to some false solutions. The realization that all pursuits under the sun are vain and that death is inevitable can lead to, one, escapism. Rather than facing the fact that, that our life here on earth is finite, we distract ourselves with video games, drugs, alcohol, Netflix, books, whatever it is. We stay busy not giving ourselves enough time to stop and and stand in the silence and think about our lives and eventually our death. We simply avoid it because we don't want to think about it, That, that which is a reality. So instead of thinking about what's a reality, our death and eventually people forgetting about us, we consume more and more, never appreciating how precious and valuable life is. So we can escape or we can enter into what's called nihilism, and that's the thinking that there is absolutely nothing worth pursuing. That if life is meaningless, then why live at all? We reject anything good that is found under the sun, and so we just say, nah, there's no meaning, there's no point. We'll just sit in, in uh, sorrow and anguish. Right? Or we can give in to the idea of hedonism, and we'll talk more about hedonism in the next few weeks. But hedonism is the belief that nothing, if nothing has meaning, then we should live a life in pursuit of pleasure, So if it pleases you, if it makes you happy, do it. So whether it be sex, drugs, rock and roll, right? Pleasure is the ultimate prize. Chase after it, no matter the cost. And all escapism or nihilism or hedonism are all wrong. For us who live in Christ, we can know that life has meaning, that our existence has purpose, that God has created us for his good and for his glory. Sure, there's going to be toil. There will be difficulties. There will be days when we question, what does all this mean? Those are the realities for us, but we no longer toil in meaninglessness. We toil in Jesus, our hope in the gospel. Our hope is the good news of Jesus, that he made a promise to make all things new, that he made a promise to recreate a new Eden. And that longing for Eden that we feel in our hearts and our mind is found in Christ. Why? Because Jesus changes everything. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58 says this, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Our work, our toil, our pursuit to bring glory and honor and praise, not to ourselves but to our Savior, is not in vain. Our work should be done, not in the pursuit of fame or fortune or vanity, but should be done to honor Jesus. We are saved and we are called for a purpose, and that purpose is to cultivate the kingdom of God all around us. Or even Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says this, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for us ahead of time. And if God prepared good works for us ahead of time, that means our life has purpose. The reality is, is that the world that will not remember you. They won't remember your work. They won't remember your toil. They won't remember your struggles, the sweat of your brow, the blood of your, of your body, but Jesus will. Jesus will remember the toil. He will remember the struggle. The one who created you and loves you will remember you. And that's why your life has meaning. Jesus will redeem everything. So enjoy God. Enjoy his creation and enjoy his goodness. Though the things of this world may be a vapor, Jesus is our anchor. Jesus is the truest of true He is the one that we should be seeking. He is the one that gives our life meaning. Everything under the sun, vanity, meaninglessness, futile, hevel, but Jesus, Jesus is our meaning. And what I want to do, we're going to do the Lord's Supper, so if I could have a couple of my ushers come up real quick and help me pass that out. Um, But as we're doing that, I want us to think about and reflect on our lives, what God has called us to do, who He has called us to be, and so we're going to, I'm going to be quiet for a minute after I pray, and then they're going to pass out the Lord's Supper. Father God, thank you that you do give our life meaning. Lord, that you have transformed us, that you are making us new. Lord, that we have been called for a purpose, and that purpose is to glorify you. Help us to live that life, not chasing after the things of this world, but chasing after your heart. And as we reflect on you through the Lord's Supper, I pray, Lord, that we would lean into the reality of the grace that has been given to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more information about our church and ministries, visit fbclouise.com.